Well, I saw this headline and it caught my attention and I thought maybe we should talk a little bit more about them because it's probably happening in other places as well. And the headline was the uproar overtaking man out of manhole. And the article goes on to talk about some changes that are being made or proposed in Berkeley, California. So to talk a bit more about this, let's bring in Shannon Day, a professor at the Department of Philosophy, also vice president of the Faculty Association at the University of Waterloo. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. I'm really happy to chat with you, Jill. Uh, what is your take on this? And it's an idea or the council at Berkeley uh, brought forward uh, a 14-page proposal uh, that changes the words of things, such as manhole and taking the gender-specific words out of certain, uh, of certain uh, I guess, nouns, certain words in, in just the everyday language. Yeah, well, one of the things I point out in the article is that they were you know, advised to do this because of uh, a new California law um, that introduced um, a third gender on official documents and changed the way people change their genders on documents. And all of the California municipalities afterwards got the advice that in light of that new law, they'd better make their own ordinances gender-inclusive. And I think Berkeley's the first one to have actually acted on that advice. Um, the changes they've made are in some sense um, kind of uh, a model for the rest of us because there hasn't been another municipality that's made such extensive changes, so far as I know, anywhere in in North America. Um, But on the other hand, the changes are kind of um, pedestrian. Most of the words in that 14-page document are quite familiar, are things that we use all the time. As I pointed out when I wrote about it in the article you mentioned, really the ordinance mostly takes a bunch of familiar gendered words and replaces them with familiar non-gendered words just to to be in compliance with that law. So it's actually kind of um, a a, a real straightforward thing that they did. Nonetheless, the media internationally, I mean overseas as well, picked up on the story and freaked out about one change in the uh, ordinance, and that was removing the word man from the word manhole and calling it a, a maintenance hole. Um, and so we had people on Fox News wringing their hands about uh, political correctness run amok and so forth, and nobody was really looking at the context and how sensible the changes really were. So I was really interested in that kind of um, immediate media pushback and what that tells us about some of our attitudes about gender. And, and it is strange. Why is it, do you think, that people picked up on that one word, on manhole? Because it's funny, right? I mean, I think, and I think that it supports the narrative that, oh, these liberals want to change everything, even things that don't matter. Um, and so, and, and probably it started with a tweet. I haven't been able to figure out where the chain of everybody and every single headline talking about manhole started. But I suspect that um, somebody started on social media and it captured everyone's imagination and everybody just started to run with that same talking point, right? Which is also a little bit telling in terms of how the media operates. Yeah, it is. And I mean, yeah, like you said, late night uh, talk show hosts picked up on it uh, and were making jokes about it. Uh, I guess some of the, the changes, though, that aren't getting as much attention, and I'm a bit surprised, I thought they might, were, were things like brother and sister have been replaced with sibling. Yeah, that's right. And let's be clear. Berkeley is in no way telling citizens that they can't refer to their siblings as brother or sister, and they can't buy a happy birthday brother card or anything like that. This is really just a customer service standard for the city. And if you think about it, Berkeley is um, an extremely diverse city, in particular a city that's home to many um, gender and sexual diverse people which is to say a lot of people whose gender you might not be able to guess by looking, whose pronouns 
um, Berkeley staff might not be able to guess by looking, and Berkeley employees might not be able to guess by looking whether the people who just showed up are brother and sister or whether they have some other way of identifying. So really, this is just a way for, for the staff members to avoid a whole bunch of complicated triage when they're doing customer service, right? And so um, if staff members talk about siblings as opposed to brothers and sisters, they're not going to accidentally misgender someone when they're dealing with the public. What about the one, though, that pregnant woman or pregnant women has been replaced by pregnant employees? Yeah, I mean... That's, that's one of the, absolutely the more cutting-edge ones, but it's something that's emerging within um, some uh, LGBTQ communities and within um, uh, uh, feminist scholarship. I will say that I have um, published a number of articles about abortion, and in those articles I talked about pregnant women, and that's something I actually regret now. Um, while most people who are pregnant are women, not everybody who becomes pregnant um, is a woman. Not everybody who becomes pregnant is a she. And I think it's important not to exclude those folks, even though they're a small minority. People who are minoritized can be the most vulnerable folks out there, right? And so merely saying employee rather than woman doesn't cause any confusion at all, and it avoids potentially um, uh, making somebody who's already minoritized more vulnerable. Right. So would it be in a, a case, in a scenario like that, that a pregnant employee is uh, somebody who's pregnant but identifies as a man? A trans man or a non-binary person. Right. And if you think about the actual, you know, the sort of um, services that are extended, if you talked about in your, in your employee or in your municipal bylaws about services that are available to pregnant women, then you could unintentionally leave out a pregnant trans man or a, a, a a pregnant non-binary person with well, any intention of doing that. So why not just avoid that altogether? Uh, some of the other ones too, I think people already have made the change or or you hear it more often in that instead of fireman, it's firefighter, right. policeman, yeah. it's police officer. Uh, those ones seem to be, it's, I mean, it's it's interesting I find how some of the, the changes to non-gender specific are just quite natural and other ones like manhole uh, f- start off a frenzy of reaction. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Although it's interesting, I don't know how many city ordinances say manhole anymore. We all say manhole, and I've been joking a lot about how I'm a manhole expert now because I've been doing some media discussions about this. I'm still comfortable saying manhole. Um, But actually, my impression is that the city engineers who are actually working with them have been using names like utility access points and so forth um, for some time, and not because they're, you know, quote-unquote politically correct, but because that's just actually a more accurate kind of technical designation. Have we got to the place, though, where we can't even have a sign on the sidewalk that says men working above because there's a chance that some of the workers that are, say, working on the windows or on that building don't identify as men? Uh, Well, Berkeley's gotten to that place now. So at this point, if there are municipal signs um, about workers overhead in, in Berkeley, the signs will say workers overhead. Nothing about this ordinance obliges anybody else to move faster than they're ready to go. I mean, I would like to see us shifting to more gender-inclusive language, but I'm also really worried that if we, in communities that aren't ready for it, if we push it too quickly without the right kind of buy-in, then we risk producing a kind of backlash that could end up harming the very folks that we want to help. So, I mean, I would like to see a future where all the signs say workers overhead But if that's going to result in some particular place in pushback that makes it harder for um, 
women and trans and non-binary folks and say workmen. That's not the most important battle for us to be fighting. And and what about the pronouns? So if you work at Berkeley Municipal Hall, are you allowed now to say he and she? Um, well, it depends. If you are dealing with uh, the public and you are refer, you are you know within a professional. Um, conversation, then Berkeley is now saying to use the pronoun they. And again, the reason is to avoid employees inadvertently misgendering or mispronouncing someone and then um, causing harm and, and complications in that way. Um, a Berkeley employee on a coffee break chatting about their weekend with another Berkeley employee on their coffee break can probably have any kind of conversation they want. This is really um, a code for what employees are doing in the line of duty. It's not some kind of constraint on people's normal free, expre- free speech. I'm looking at the list at uh, the the phrases as well and the, the replacements, and it struck me because in Canada right now we have a, a nationwide and all of the media stories have been talking about a manhunt because there are two uh, fugitives yeah, yeah. on the land. So in Berkeley, though, if that was happening, you wouldn't be able to call it a manhunt. Yeah, no, I suppose that... Um I mean, manhunt is kind of a scary phrase anyway, but uh, um, I'm not sure what they would say. I don't remember uh, an alternative in the ordinance, but they might say something like a hunt for suspects, um, a police search for suspects, something like that. A police search for suspects considered dangerous. I mean, that's equally informative, right? Right. Um, aside from the, the talk show hosts and, and people that uh, have uh, attacked or uh, kind of attacked uh, the, the manhole replacement, what other kind of response are you getting or are you seeing to this? I'm getting a little bit of social media pushback from folks who, I mean, I remember one comment in particular from a person who said, can't men have anything named after them? The men who go down the manholes, surely they get to have that hole named after them. And I have to say, um, it's a happy coincidence that my own father worked for the Ottawa Waterworks for most of my childhood. So he was one of the people who went down the manholes. And I have to tell you, he did not care whether that hole was named after him. The notion that that is some kind of honorific that somebody would value is kind of laughable to me. We, we can name better things after people to, to honor them. So there's a little bit of that kind of pushback. But I'm also seeing a lot of response from people saying, didn't we do this decades ago? Are we still having the same conversation over and over and over? Now, they're saying that more about things like police officer and um, maintenance hole and so forth. The, the change that I think uh, I see folks on social media struggling with the most, and I'm talking about genuine struggle here, not kind of careless trolling. The genuine struggle, I think, is around the pronoun they. I think that using they as a um, singular gender neutral pronoun is, it still feels like a big step to, to a lot of folks. And it still it feels grammatically incorrect to a lot of people. Yeah, so there are two things about that. It's not grammatically incorrect. We've been using it that way for centuries. And I use an example in the article where I say, you know, it's perfectly normal if we don't know somebody's gender to say, oh, someone forgot their book here. I hope they remember and come back for it. We do that all the time and don't even notice that we're doing it. But the other thing I think is really hilarious is that suddenly people who mistakenly think that the the usage is non-grammatical are becoming super passionate about grammar in a way that I do not see um, across the board, just with regular idiomatic statements. We speak in ungrammatical ways all the time, and people don't freak out about it on social media. So I think that their concerns aren't as much about grammar as they are about social norms. 
All right. Well, it's an interesting uh, article and uh, interesting what's happening at Berkeley. Uh, Shannon, thank you so much for, for joining us and talking about it today. I really appreciate it. Great talking to you, Jill. Well, some new research done by Research Co. has found that most Canadians believe that conversion therapy should be banned in this country. So let's bring in Mario Canseco, the president of Research Co., to talk a little bit more about this. Mario, good morning to you. Good morning, Jill. So what exactly did you ask people in this uh, latest poll? Well, we've been hearing a lot about the Liberal government uh, at the federal level trying to do something about conversion therapy. And the first thing we wanted to find out is, do Canadians think this can happen? Would, you, would they like to see this banned? And we added one more question related to the use of transgender Canadians of a, a public bathrooms. Um, and you know, I think we got some results that are quite interesting, especially within the context of the federal election coming up in just a few weeks. And just to clarify, in case somebody's not familiar with conversion therapy, it's a type of therapy, it's quite controversial, and it suggests that this therapy can help anybody who identifies as LGBTQ, uh, in, that can shift them into becoming heterosexual through uh, some kind of intervention, be it spiritual, psychological, and uh, and. Uh, well, that's what that's how it's defined. But and I think I, I'm not surprised that most Canadians came out saying that yeah, we should ban this. But what, what, how did the results kind of break down in that uh, response? Well, we do see 58 percent of Canadians who would be happy with banning conversion therapy at the federal level. There's a couple of bans in place: one in Manitoba, one in Ontario, and there's also two cities that have decided to stop uh, businesses from offering these services. One is Santa Albert in Alberta, and the other one is Vancouver here in BC. So. There has been a little bit of legislative action on this, uh, but it hasn't been done at the federal level. Uh, the highest level of support for banning conversion therapy from women at 62 percent, B.C. residents at 65 percent. That was not a surprise. And also Canadians aged 18 to 34 at 61 percent. Now, this is not suggesting that there's groups that would like to continue with this. Uh, it, it only means that there are specific areas of the country uh, where this is definitely less attractive than in others. And did it look at, or did you look at age in this, in that it seems like there is a bit of a difference as well. If you're talking about putting children through this or putting teenagers through this, that a parent is deciding that uh, compared to an adult. And I mean, adults make poor choices all the time. And, and that doesn't mean we have to legislate uh, those choices. But it does seem like there's a difference between someone being forced into this and someone as an adult making the choice to do this. Absolutely. I think, you know, one of the keys to the exercise when you're looking at the age breakdown, it's not support for this. It's not a situation where you want uh, this type of specific therapy, which has been very controversial, as you said, to continue. What we see is that the level of support uh, for a ban dropping from 61% with millennials to 57% with Generation X and to 55% uh, with baby boomers. Now, we still see majorities who would like to see this ban. But what is interesting is the age uh, is doing something quite interesting, which is making more undecided. We see 15% of those 18 to 34 who are undecided on the question. It climbs a little bit to 18% with uh, those age 35 to 54. And there's 23% of Canadians over the age of 55 who don't know if this is possible. And I think it has a lot to do with education. You know, there's definitely younger generations that have been exposed to LGBT issues, certainly at a higher level than their older counterparts. And I think this is one of the reasons for many uh, baby boomers to say, I don't know if this should be banned. I simply don't know. And which is interesting, too, and not 
overly surprising, I guess, if you look at how things have changed since when baby boomers were children or when they were younger, when you look at how, how public attitudes and education has changed in that there, it, there was a mindset, I think, of a lot of people not that long ago that this is something that needs, needs to be fixed, needs to be corrected, whereas thankfully we're at a place now where we realize or hopefully we realize it's not something that needs to be corrected. It's simply how somebody is and, and there's no therapy needed to fix this. And, and that's probably what we're seeing in the, in the breakdown of the, of the different age groups. Well, it is definitely something that is happening with age groups. Uh, but there's also a very fascinating component for me, which is uh, the situation related to ethnicity. There's only 20% of Canadians of European descent who believe that conversion therapy can happen. It climbs to 34% uh, among those of South Asian descent and 36% among those of East Asian descent. So I think it has also a lot to do with the education and the changes. If you come from a country where this wasn't discussed very openly, you may be more hesitant uh, to say that this is something that you'd like to see happen. Hmm. Uh, You mentioned as well uh, bathrooms and uh, that uh, part of this poll asks about that. I swear, I I never thought if we looked back five years ago that we would spend so much time talking about washrooms but here we are again. Uh, what did you ask people about to washrooms or bathrooms in this poll? Well, we wanted to keep it as simple as we could. And it's essentially uh, which bathroom should transgender Canadians use when it, when it comes down to actually a, a, a public bathroom. And there's 52% of Canadians who say the bathroom of their choice. And there's 33% who say the bathroom based on biological sex. The key difference here is political. Uh, We see more Canadians who voted for the Liberal Party or the NDP in the last federal election, 63 and 60%, saying that this is the case it should be. But uh, when you ask Conservative Party voters in the last federal election, more than half of them, 52%, believe that transgender Canadians should use the public bathroom based on biological sex. Now, we're just... uh, under three months away from the federal election, lots of discussions related to how the Conservative Party uh, plans to deal with socially conservative matters. Uh, abortion is one of them. This one is one of them. So there's a little bit of, uh, of uh, support for some changes when it comes to the base. Uh, but if the, if the federal conservatives decide to do something about this, they could be alienating voters who are looking at them as a choice. So It'll be fascinating to watch what, what happens uh, when this type of issue starts to be discussed and what type of statements Andrew Scheer makes from here until October 21st. And also uh, kind of what kind of attacks are against them. I mean, if you look back at the conservative record, which you don't have to go back that far in uh, political history in Canada to, to for people who are kind of fear mongering and saying, oh, wait, wait, so they're going to bring in U.S. style laws. Well, they yeah. didn't the entire time they were in power before. And it doesn't appear that there's that shift. But you're right. It, leading up to the election is going to be uh, an interesting one to kind of wade through all of the different uh, accusations and uh, all of the different uh, pieces of information that are put out there. Well, it's an interesting one because I do remember right after Stephen Harper got his majority government uh, back in 2011, uh, there were a lot of discussions about, well, now that he has the majority, now we're going to do something about all of these socially conservative issues. And the answer from Stephen Harper was, we're not going to touch any of this. So I think it's a situation that helps the base in both places. It helps conservatives galvanize some of the voters who are worried about this. And it also helps liberals and NDPers say, watch out, if there's a conservative government, you may be losing some of your rights. And and do you, do you find too with that number, the fifty two percent in this poll, um, does that kind of that that what does that tell us, or what does that tell you about uh, at least the people who answered this poll? Well, I think it's a combination of factors. You know, there's there's definitely a situation where 
uh, voters uh, for the Conservative Party in the last election tend to have a very uh, specific mindset when it comes to some of these issues. I think it's definitely more controversial on the side of the uh, public bathrooms uh, because we, we see a little bit of a drop on the question related to conversion therapy. Many of them are undecided. There's not a high level of support for this policy or this idea. Uh, but, you know, when it comes down to the actual bathroom issue, uh, I think that has been covered even more extensively, and I think that might be one of the reasons for the conservatives to say this is something that makes me uncomfortable. Uh, it's not something that we see happening with the Liberal or the NDP voters. All right. So interesting findings. And I'm sure, like you said, as we get closer and uh, closer to the election, there's going to be more uh, discussion on this. Uh, will you be doing more polling on these issues? Yeah, definitely. You know, we are uh, heading into the anniversary of uh, same-sex marriage becoming legal in Canada. So I think it's a good opportunity to ask people, are you happy with this? Is this the way it should be? And there's also the matter of sexual education in schools, which is a topic that has always fascinated me, and we'll be asking about that soon. All right. Uh, We will talk to you again, I'm sure. Mario, thank you so much. My pleasure, Jill. Thank you. Well, if you saw this piece in the TIE, you would have seen the picture of the Titanic. But the piece itself is about housing affordability and more specifically about the citywide plan at Vancouver City Council. And it's written by Patrick Condon, who is the James Taylor Chair in Landscape and Livable Environments at UBC's School of Architecture and Landscape Architecture and the founding chair of the UBC Urban Design Program. And he joins us on the line now to talk a bit more about this. Thank you so much for being with us. Glad to be here, Jill. Uh, the, the title of this, the headline is that a titanic lack of focus may sink Vancouver's chance to make housing affordable. Uh, can you explain a little bit more about what you mean? Well, it's intentionally provocative, but what we mean is, but what I mean by that is that uh, the city council has put forward a proposal for a city plan that has 12 different has a dozen different objectives and they are not ranked and they don't give priority to the housing crisis that we all know is here so the the idea that's being expressed here in the article is that they should prioritize the housing crisis first and foremost which they haven't so far done and i hope they will and the citywide plan also, some of the criticism of it has been, uh, as well in, as well as criticism of this council, has been that they spend a lot of time dealing with issues that aren't even in their jurisdiction. Yeah, that's right. What's really in the jurisdiction is land use and transportation, particularly land use as a traditional power of the city government. And they have incredible powers to limit the use of land to whatever purpose they want. So given that, the city council and the city generally could uh, could institute a, a set of policy procedures by which they could not only encourage uh, affordable housing, which they're doing now, but they could insist on it. And they have that power, and they're not recognizing that they do. And what do you think they could do? I mean, is it something, I would say as simple as, but it's never really simple, but reducing fees that add to the cost of housing? Is it streamlining the approval process for new buildings? What do you think they could do immediately? Uh, those things might be important, but the real problem in the city of Vancouver and elsewhere is the land costs are out of control. And land costs go up when the city allows for additional density. It, it goes up in measure to that density. If you double the allowable density on a parcel, it doubles the cost of the land. So the real beneficiaries of any uh, attempts to increase density are not are not the people who buy the housing, but they're the, they're the people who happen to own the land. Or and in many cases, those people are professional land speculators. So what the article suggests 
is really quite simple. If, if the city is going to increase density, if the city decides to allow increases in density, they should also insist on social benefit, that some of the some of the increase in land value or a large amount of the increase in land value should go to make, making sure that people can afford to live here through the provision of uh, non-market housing. There could be uh, co-ops or, or uh, uh, dwelling units that are owned and operated by non-governmental organizations and so forth. And do you think that there's an appetite to do that or why, why isn't that at the top of the list? That's a kind of curiosity to me. I'm not sure why it is. I, I think we've gotten in the habit in the city of Vancouver and elsewhere of not recognizing the power of the city. And, and this, to actually, actually the, city, the city is more powerful uh, in terms of delivering affordable housing than the federal government and the provincial government, who can only pour money into the problem, which tends to increase the price of land. So I think there's a, a failure of recognizing the powers and a kind of seduction of other issues that they are really not responsible for. The, the list of 12 objectives even includes something about something that obliquely refers to a high-speed rail line to Seattle, for goodness sakes. I mean, that's really way outside the purview of the city. Well, and, and I have it in front of me, and you're right. I, I looked at some of these and thought, how is that on the list of top priorities? It's making connections to the metropolitan region and Cascadia. I don't even know what that means. It's a reference to some enthusiasm in City Hall for the high-speed rail line proposal at $30 billion or whatever. Uh, and it really has nothing to do with the city. But the, the, the current proposal for the citywide plan is a grab bag of all kinds of good things over, over which the city really doesn't have direct control. And that diminishes the focus on land use, which they do have direct control over because one of the other ones too is uh, enhancing social well-being and local food security which yeah, again that's right sounds good but i'm not sure if you went out and asked 100 people on the street what they what's a top priority for the city council i'm not sure that one would come up no i don't think so i think everybody recognizes that housing is the one and almost only issue for the city right now and if we don't solve that one the city as we know it is going to disappear so what about issues when we when we talk about housing, but then we see development proposals uh, like the one at Broadway and Birch, which has had a lot of pushback because the developer wants to build a 28-story tower and a lot of people in the community saying that doesn't fit. Uh, we had another one at uh, Main Street and Main and Kingsway that did go ahead that many people in the community said was way too big. How do we kind of make it, how do we find common ground there when we do see these bigger projects, but see so much pushback? Well, what I'm what I'm what the article's trying to get across is that adding density to get affordable housing is is really putting fuel on the fire of inflated land prices. When you add when when you allow for a very large building like that, uh, at the end of the day, the apartments that are rented are not affordable. The only real beneficiary of that is the la- the landowner who happens to own the land that the value for which is incredibly increased by the city's action to allow that additional density. And the city's not effectively capturing that that value for social purpose, for housing that is truly affordable. It doesn't do any good to put new rental units at the very top of the income level. That just increases the, the, the likelihood that people, people in middle income and lower income levels are going to be forced out of the city. 
Well, and, and that's what we hear from the city as well. And the previous council also, it was that wage range of between thirty and 80000 which is a huge range, uh, but saying that that was the focus of trying to get housing that to people making those wages, families making that wage, would be able to live in the city. I mean, is that even doable? Not the way they're doing it, in my view. Uh, the previous uh, council oversaw the creation of new rental units that were almost entirely, in fact, they were entirely at the high level for income. There was there was not a single unit produced for medium and low income earners through their previous efforts. So as valiant as they may have thought they were, they're just simply not working. And my argument is that they weren't working because the real way to get affordable housing is to capture the value of land uh, density increases and use that use that as a as a lever to get permanently affordable housing in the form of nonprofit housing. And you mentioned co-ops earlier as well, and that's something that has come up time and time again. In that there used to be a federal program, and there used to be uh, more of an emphasis on building co-op housing, which for many people is an affordable type of housing. Um, has the shift away from that? Do you think led to to this lack of affordable housing? Absolutely. Up until the 1980s uh, and then early 1990s, we we were in this city making great progress in affordable housing. Now we have 15% of all housing in the city is non-market housing. But they they decided the national and provincial governments, and this is not just Canada, but throughout the world really, in the 1990s, decided that the best the best producer of housing would be the the private marketplace that worked for a while, but now with income inequality being so, so extreme and land values going up so, so high, the, the, the inequality is, is at the break point and it, and it focuses largely on housing. The, the greatest gap between, uh, between average wages and what you need to buy in order to have a decent life is the price of housing. That's where inequality really is focused. So aside, though, from uh, government subsidies and subsidized housing, uh, how else do you fix that? Well, I like to think that it's not really government subsidies if, if in fact, the city is putting itself in a position of saying, well, we can either leave the land alone and not upzone, or if we do upzone, we have a right to extract from the tremendous increase in value some social benefit in the form of payments for for uh, co-op housing that we could supply or some of those units being deeded over to a non-governmental organization or a co-op. All right. Uh, what kind of response have you had to, to this piece? Uh, great, great among people who, you know, are my friends and so forth who, who understand this issue, but it's, it's a hard sell because we haven't really uh, found a way to support co-op housing or non-market housing since the 1980s, so people are not used to the idea that this is something that's possible to do. All right. Well, we will have to leave it there. We're out of time, but thank you so much for joining us sure, to talk Jill. about this. Yep. All right. Bye-bye. If you've ever dreamed of owning and running a restaurant, my next guest might reinforce that dream or might send you running in the opposite direction. Bruno Huber joins me on the line now, an author and uh, runs, uh, has run a restaurant on Denman Street. Bruno, thank you so much for being with us today. Yeah, good morning, Jill. So how long ago did you first get into the restaurant business? Well, it was just before the Olympics. So, uh, which was 2010, and we had it for two years. Yeah, and we just made it to. Uh, we got open two days before the Olympics. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That's pretty good timing. 
Um, yeah. and, and it was called the Folly Bistro? No, no. It was called uh, Le Bistro de Paris. And this formerly was called uh, Café de Paris. And it was in Denman and Robs and there on the corner. It's been there for 30 years, you know. Okay. So, Sorry, my mistake. I was getting it confused no, with the, the, t- the title yeah, the of the book. The book is called Folly Bistro because it was my folly. <laughs> <laughs> so, so walk us through that. To what, to, at what point did you realize, I have to write a book about this? Well, there was just too many uh, crazy stories that, that went on in that place that I you know, started taking notes. And when it was all over, I said, I can't keep this to myself. This is too good. And the people that want to get into the restaurant business should know a few things. You know, I was my partner had restaurant experience, but I did not. You know, so, yeah, I was in way over my head. And uh, there was a lot of uh, a steep learning curve. Let's put it that way. I guess so. So you went into yeah. it with, with no experience. Yeah, it was an opportunity. You know, the restaurant had been abandoned for, uh, yeah, that's a whole other story. But anyway, it was there. Uh, and we had to take over the lease and did some uh, cosmetic renovations and and then apply for all the licenses. And uh, it was an opportunity. He says, wow, you know, that would be so cool to have a French restaurant. I always wanted something like that, you know, an Irish bar or a French restaurant. And <laughs> <laughs> So, Indeed. So, yeah. so it sounds like, though, even though uh, the book has some some pretty crazy stories, but it sounds like would you would you how would you classify? It? Would you say it was fun? We certainly had a lot of fun. Yeah, there was certainly a lot of fun times in it because you know I got to invite all my friends and family, and yeah, the wine was good, the food was good. Yeah, no, we had a lot of fun, fun times, New Year's, birthdays, you know, yeah. <laughs> What about the working hours? Well, you basically don't have a, a life, you know, and uh, you don't have a social life because I'm always in there Friday, Saturday, when everybody else is going out, having fun. New Year's, you know, all kinds of long weekends. You're always in the restaurant. So and if you're, let's say, uh, my wife had a normal job, but, uh, you know, she was a nurse at the hospital. So she got up and. I was still in bed, and uh, when I came home, she was in bed, so it was like ships passing at sea. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a full-time job, seven days a week, right? Uh, in, the, in the write-up about the book, one of the lines in that mm-hmm. says, the bistro was supposed to be about food, but mostly it revolved around unpredictable human behavior. Uh, tell me a story about some of the unpredictable human behavior. Well... It was, you know, for example, uh, one time I had a guy uh, in the restaurant that I didn't know who he was. And uh, when I asked, and he says, well, he's a helper for the chef. And I says, what do you mean a helper? He, he smells like he just crawled out of a dumpster. What's going on here? So so when I stopped him and says, what are you doing here? He says, oh, I'm just helping the chef. Don't worry about me. It's all good. I says, well, uh, not really. So when I confronted the chef, he told me, that the guy was paying off uh, an old family debt. And I says, you can't bring in a personal slave here. He says, well, what are you talking about? He says, it's free labor for you, so just relax. <laughs> I says, okay, you can't do that. <laughs> anyway, that sort of thing. And, uh, of course, this time of year, uh, people just didn't show up for work. And I think that's pretty common. You know, so uh, you always have to jump into a fray. Even I have to take a position up front or do something or call frantically around to get people in to work in the kitchen and, yeah, that sort of thing. And uh, people were just unpredictable, 
So, and I think that's probably, uh, you know, uh, that's probably generic throughout the restaurant business. It's a, it's a, diff- uh, it's a difficult racket, you know. It certainly attracts there. There are people that are drawn to it uh, and and like yourself, maybe that get into it without a lot of experience and others that would would absolutely never want to be a part of it. Uh, and I mean, and I, I think the hours and like you said, it's a it's a seven day a week operation. Yeah. Uh, five chefs you went through while the restaurant yeah, was open. What's that? That you had you had five chefs during uh, for the, right. the span five of the restaurant chefs in two years. And that does that that seems like a lot. It seems like a lot, but uh, yeah, it was a lot. So, uh, you know, but that's just the way it was because uh, the minute I hired these chefs, they became artists, you know? So mm-hmm. instead of, uh, you know, I said, you need to cook this menu that we have. And they said, you know, they immediately wanted to say, no, 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 I'll cook something for you. They'll bring in the world. And, you know, I have this fantastic stuff. We're going to change everything. So no, we're not changing anything. We're cooking what's on the menu here. That's why people come back. You know, you know, there's three basic rules. You know, it's consistency, consistency, and consistency. You need to, you know. So right away, that started. And then uh, because of uh, it, they just didn't last. That's, that's all there is, you know. We had a, and if you read the book, there was quite a, you know, there were uh, fights. And, uh, you know, people were just... Uh, that's the that's the way the business is. If we would have ended up with the crew ahead at the very end, with the chef ahead at the end and the crew and everything, I think we would have lasted longer, you know, because finally we had something that worked, you know, and everybody chilled and yeah, but that took a while to get that together. <laughs> Which I think so. that that sounds pretty common in that you need to find that groove or find that team that works well together. I think so, you know, unless it's a, a family operation and then, you know, the loyalty factor is a big one, you know, so uh, yeah, you know, if, uh, if it's a family or the chef or you're the chef or the chef is uh, a spouse or, a, you know, or a, or a father or something, then th- I think that is a stability factor that, uh, you know, that every restaurant needs. But if you have to hire everybody off the street, then or, you know, when you hire everybody, and I had to hire French chefs with French-trained uh, chefs. They were, uh, you know, they were considered themselves the elite of the elite. <laughs> <laughs> well, and do you think that was part of it that led to part of the, the shenanigans, if you will, the fact that it was a French restaurant? Well, maybe not so much because it was a French restaurant, but uh, it, it was, I think it's just part of the restaurant business, you know? I mean... Uh, for example, I, I, you know, like restaurant is a bit like theater, you know, up front it has to just, the show has to go on, has to be just all perfect, everybody has to be jovial, the music and the food and everything comes out perfectly. Meanwhile, the kitchen is, uh, can be a, a boiler room, you know, like everybody yelling and screaming and the busier it's out front, the, the harder it is in the kitchen. So, you know, and uh, that's just not everybody's. You know, not everybody can do this. And our kitchen was fairly small and we had to put out, a, you know, some uh, a lot of food. We were a kitchen that cooked everything from, from scratch, from ingredients. This was not prepared in a way where you can just have plated it and put it out like uh, a lot of restaurants are doing today. So, uh, yeah. Hmm. And I don't want to give it away if, if this is a part of the book. I don't want it to be a big mm. spoiler. But so why did you close the restaurant? Well, we were able to sell it at the time. There was a, you know, somebody interested in it and I says, really? Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> well, you know, it's like uh, uh, tell people it's like the restaurant is like the boat owner. You know, what are the two happiest days? The day you buy it and the day you sell it, I guess. <laughs> so for me, that was definitely the case. I was just happy to get out of it. So, you know, so. But, you know, that's not saying we didn't have a lot of fun doing it. And, uh, you know, there's no regrets there. But, uh, boy, oh, boy, that was a crazy two years for me. So, uh, anyway. Well, yeah. That's all in the book. <laughs> we often hear about the margins in restaurants as well. The profit margins mm-hmm. are very uh, small. And you work very yeah. hard for it. Could you make yeah. money at, at running this restaurant? Well, people always ask me that. Did you make money? And I always tell them, you know, how do you make a million bucks in a restaurant? You start with two million. So uh, <laughs> basically, it's a little bit like that. And the margins in a French restaurant, um, the food replacements for cost, for example, is between 22 and 25 percent. Whereas an Italian restaurant, it's pasta and stuff, it's maybe 7%. And Chinese restaurant is maybe 5%. So you can see the food replacement was expensive. You know, we have the best cuts of meat and the best cuts of fish and organic, you know, uh, duck from the Fraser Valley and all of this. So, yeah. So that was a challenge. And, of course, the chefs were expensive because they were classically trained. And then you had to try and keep the food costs down. So people come in the restaurant because we wanted to be inclusive, not totally exclusive, you know, sort of more like a bistro rather than a exclusive first-class restaurant. So there you go. So, Would you do it yeah, again? That was a challenge for sure. So, Would you do it again if, if someone brought the opportunity uh, to you? Uh, people ask me all the time, hey, do you want to open a restaurant down here? This is such a great location. I said, no, thanks. You know what? I'm a, no. <laughs> But, you know, at the time, yeah, that's definitely, uh, I thought that was the greatest thing, you know. There was such an opportunity. He says, well, if I don't do it, I'll regret it, you know. And uh, the opportunity presented itself with the location and the kind of restaurant it was and everything. He said, well, this is going to be good, you know. So, yeah. All right. But I, I probably wouldn't do it again at this point, you know, because it it, take, it takes up all your time, so. Yes, I, we've, mm-hmm. I've heard that. So certainly that's a common common thread when it comes yeah. to people. And you have to love it. You have to absolutely love it or else you're not going to enjoy it at all. Um, I know you recently had a reading of your book. Do you have any other ones coming up? Uh, I had a, a launch of the book. Actually, we launched it at the Joe Forte's library, you know, last uh, Thursday, because that's on Denman Street. So, you know, there's a few people that came in that knew the restaurant, you know, so that was fun, you know, to talk to them. And of course, right now, that whole block is gone between you know, Bernie and uh, and Robs and Robs and there on Denman. There's going to be a spiffy new condo tower there, so mm-hmm. that's all gone. So yeah, and uh, we had a. I was at a couple of bookstores over the weekend. The Indigo bookstores, they don't call themselves bookstores anymore. They call themselves cultural shopping malls. <laughs> I was told. I said, oh. oh really? Oh okay, I get it. So. Uh, and I'll have, have a, you know, I have a reading coming up in Nelson, D.C. And, uh, you know, so nothing right now coming up. That was a pretty busy last five days for me. So All right. Anyway, yeah. Well, thank you for joining us and talking yeah. about this this morning. Uh, much yeah. appreciated. Uh, Bruno Huber, the author of Foley Bistro uh, on the line. Thank you again so much. Yeah, thanks, Jill. Have a good day.